All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and we are digging deeper into Revelation, moving into chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, as we talk about the seven churches that receive the first copy of the book of Revelation. So we're going to see what Jesus has to say in greeting to these before we get into the big message that he has in chapters 1 and 2 as and 3 as we go through these next few months. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So for our, our text for this week, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. We have these seven churches laid out next week in the reading. But we want to focus on who Jesus gives the reading from. Grace to you and peace from him who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come. Ecumenius and Andreas from the 6th century all interpret this as the triune God. The one who is, being God, the Father. The one who was, being the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the one who is to come, the Holy Spirit. But again, it is better to see in the text itself grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, all being about the Father. Now he talks about the seven spirits, and this is where we get into a little bit of our digging deep into this. So first of all, one idea is these seven spirits are the seven archangels, especially from First Enoch chapter 20. And these are the names of the holy angels who watch. Seruel, one of the holy angels, for he is of eternity and of trembling. Raphael, one of the holy angels, for he is of the spirits of man. Reguel, one of the holy angels who takes vengeance for the world and for the luminaries. Michael, one of the holy angels, for he is obedient in his benevolence over the people and the nations. Sarekael, one of the holy angels who is set over the spirit of mankind who sin in the spirit. Gabriel, one of the holy angels who oversee the Garden of Eden and the serpents and the cherubim. As we talk about the seven spirits, this is one of the earliest viewpoints, is that the seven spirits are the seven archangels that are lined out here in First Enoch 20. Victorinus wants to have us, going back even to the third century, as the Holy Spirit's gifts, the sevenfold gifts, given out in Isaiah 11. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge in the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. We also look to the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit in Zechariah chapters 3 and 4. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke And he said to me, what do you see? 
I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands all shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So you get one more idea as to the seven spirits that have been brought out through history. But also, we take into account the symbolic nature of the number seven. Seven is three plus four. Three being the number for God, being the Trinity, and four being creation, talking especially about the four corners. So the seven would be talking about the God of creation, of perfection, of holiness, all of these things. And so we have, again, as Genesis 18 reminds us, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. The Lord appeared to Abram, or Abraham at this time, and it was three men who stood before him. Isaiah 6, and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Again, holy, holy, holy. One for each member of the Trinity. And then the whole earth, the four corners of it being there. We move on to Ezekiel 37, verse 9, where God says to Ezekiel, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So we have this idea of seven as being the symbolic representation of the God of creation. But this is not only the only thing that says about the symbolism of seven. Apprentius of Beja in the mid-sixth century wrote in his book on the Apocalypse, the number seven therefore signifies the period of the present life, so that the apostle is not merely writing to seven churches and to that world in which he was then present, but it is understood that he is giving these writings to all future ages, even to the consummation of the world. Therefore, he mentions the number in a most holy manner, and he names Asia, which means elevated or walking, indicating that celestial fatherland, which we call the Catholic Church. For exalted by the Lord and always moving toward the things which are above, it is the church which advances by spiritual exercises and is always desirous of the things of heaven. Again, this is one of those moments where we have the symbolism being brought out to where it is kind of that idealistic interpretation of Revelation, where it is simply, yes, there are seven churches named, they are all in Asia, but this is the elevated, the walking towards the celestial fatherland that the church does by itself and of its own nature. And could that be absolutely true? Absolutely, it could be. 
And in this case, yes, it has not only been given to these seven churches, but it has been recorded in the Bible for 1900 years so that it is given to each and every age so that we may see what is going to happen at the consummation of the age. We move on into verse 5 as we talk about Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here we have John using the firstborn. Usually when John talks about Jesus and his birth and heritage, he talks about the, being the only begotten, as we have in John 3.16. But the prototokos, the firstborn, gives us this idea of so much more about Jesus and what it is that he has to say to us and who he is that gives the basis for his message. It first talks about the only child, especially when we get to Luke 7, uh, verse 12. As Jesus drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So here we have it being as the only son. Again, Judges 11.34, Then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. So you can have this as the only child. But then it also talks about the divine sonship of Jesus. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It goes on in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the fa father's side, he has made him known. And then John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then we have what is more seen in Paul's writings than in John's. This idea of the firstborn from the dead, talking about Jesus's resurrection. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jumping to verse 18 in the same chapter. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Moving on to 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And then as the declaration that we have in the funeral service from John 11, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life, the firstborn from the dead. His resurrection is what brings the faith in all of our resurrections at the end of the age. Athanasius writes in his Discourses Against the Arians, Although it was after us that he was made man for us and became our brother by likeness of body, still he is called and is the firstborn of us. Since all people were lost through the transgression of Adam, Christ's flesh was saved first of all and was liberated because it was the Word's body. Henceforth also we, having been joined together with his body, are saved through it. For in his body the Lord becomes our guide to the kingdom of heaven and to his own Father, saying, I am the way and the door, and through me all must enter. Wherefore he is also said to be the firstborn of the dead, not because he died before us, but since we died first, but because he suffered death for us and abolished it. Therefore, as man was the first to rise, raising his own body for our sakes, therefore, since he is risen, we too shall rise from the dead from him and through him. Athanasius, as many of the church fathers, are quite heavy and heady in their wording. But he reminds us that Christ is the firstborn of the dead because he is the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. We have plenty of other resurrections. We talk about the widow's son from Nain, Lazarus, the Shunammite son that Elijah raised from the dead. We have these resurrections, but they all die again. Jesus is the one who was raised never to die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So we have this great and glorious promise of Jesus being the firstborn of the dead for us, because of us, because of our sin, he died. Because of our sin, he rose from the dead to show the forgiveness that has been given through that. And therefore, he is the firstborn of many brothers, as the letter to Hebrews says. And then we talk about the ruler of kings. This is kind of one of those things that we don't necessarily associate with Jesus very often. But Romans 13, 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We have the great and glorious wonder of Jesus truly being the ruler of the kings of the earth, because there is no kingdom, there is no authority, no government that has not been instituted by him, because it is he who establishes the role of government in the first place. And he does that in the fourth commandment, as we see from the small catechism, honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. As we look to all the things that we have in this world, all the things that come about for us, we realize the most basic of all is the family. The mother and father who give birth to us, first of all, but are the ones who guide us from childhood into adulthood and even beyond so that there is no statute of limitations on the fourth commandment. You never stop becoming 
your parent's child or your child's parents. Everything continues on until death. But it is also the establishment of the family by Adam and Eve that God establishes also every other authority because the family is the basic building block of all society. There would be no other authority were there not the family. And so we have this again, Jesus Christ being the ruler of the kings, he being the one giving them the authority simply because he is the son of the father. Firstborn, only begotten. We can try to quibble between these two, but both work for us because he is the only begotten. There is no one else begotten of the father before all worlds just Jesus, but he is also the firstborn of many brothers, that you and I may rejoice in our own resurrection because of his resurrection. The one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. This is the great and royal priesthood that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2 that we have as Christians. We are both kings who will judge the world, but also the priest who bring about the worship of our God, bringing about the great kingdom that comes, as we heard this past Monday on the confessional corner, talking about the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. God's kingdom comes because we are part of the kingdom as kings, but also as priest, sharing that word. And this is what John encourages these seven physical churches in Asia to do, is to share this word, all of Revelation, so that you and I and everyone else throughout all of Christian history can say, okay, this is what God has said to us. We believe it. We may not understand it completely, but we definitely believe that this is true because this is the word of God. And that's where we leave off this week, understanding that we don't understand, but knowing that this is the word of God, the one who is our father, the one who sent Jesus to die for our sins, to rise from the dead, to show us that forgiveness and to promise us our own resurrection so that we may live with him. And this gives us the strength to wrestle with the theologies around us that cause us to dig deeper into the scriptures. And I thank you for being here this week to do just that, to wrestle with the theologies around us by digging deeper into Revelation. And I pray that you continue to follow along as we continue to go through Revelation through these next few months. Amen.